and sisters and class members. At our last class we concluded with a brief outline of the first verse of chapter 3, the situation that now existed in the case of David who has been made king over Judah in Hebron and uh, uh, the work of Abner in trying to establish Ishbosheth in continuing the line of Saul. So having given that brief outline of uh, the circumstances that are really involved there in that first verse of the chapter, we just simply leave that verse now with the uh, repetition of what the verse is. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. There was of course no need for that warfare, and the only reason that warfare continued was because of the stubbornness of Abner in trying, as we shall see a little later on, God willing, to defy the declared will of Yahweh and therefore it became on the part of David and those associated with him an example of the warfare of faith. It says there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And of course a state of constant warfare involves a long and a painful struggle. And what we have here in verse 1 is a type of the warfare of faith. And as it says there that the house of David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker, we're being told there that David was slowly but surely winning the warfare of faith. And that is something that only happens slowly. When we are fighting the warfare of faith, and that is primarily a warfare that is fought within our own selves to overcome the flesh, but when we are fighting the warfare of faith, no one is ever going to gain the victory in that regard with a consistent, particular, uh, very meritorious victory. We know, for example, in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ that he lived for 33 and a half years before he gained the ultimate final victory. Certainly, he always gained the victory over the flesh, but there was no real outcome to that warfare until it was all over, until it was finished. So David was slowly but surely winning the warfare of faith in this type here with the hand of God upon him. And it is not a conflict, as we've said, that is decided quickly. For example, we're reminded of the words of David in Psalm 27 and at verse 14 where he says, Wait on Yahweh, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. They're really beautiful words, brethren and sisters, but when you think of them, he's really saying, be patient, is he not? Wait on Yahweh. In other words, in any given situation, we may pray earnestly to be relieved of a particular trial and the relief might not come. The trial might, not, might go on and on and on. It might be days, it might be weeks, it might be months, it may be years before we are granted a victory over a particular trial. But as long as that trial goes on, we know that that is Yahweh's answer to us. If we pray and ask earnestly that this trial be relieved from us because of the suffering and the pressure and the trauma perhaps that it is causing us and we don't have relief from that trial, it's not that God doesn't hear us and we must never ever say that. What we must say is that that is God's answer. The fact that the, 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 the trial is not relieved indicates to us but Yahweh has a reason that we cannot see and we cannot discern as to why that trial should continue. Perhaps someone else is going to become involved in that trial to their own good and their own benefit in somehow. We don't know how those things work out. But what we do know is that the advice of David is absolutely wonderful and it is spiritual. When he says, wait on Yahweh, no matter how long it takes, just be patient, be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. And with that in mind, we then look at verse 2 and verse 3, where here we learn that David had now acquired four more wives, including Makar, who was a princess from Geshur, an area near the Golden Heights. We note particularly that Absalom, who was born of her, had royal blood on both sides of his family. The only one 
who did, so far as we are aware, the only son of David in that sense. He had royal blood from both sides of his family. His uh, mother was a princess and his father was a king. So there was no commoner connections or origins so far as Absalom was concerned. And this would have been at least partly responsible for the pride which was so manifested in that man. Of all David's sons who are mentioned in any way in scripture, in any incidents, Absalom stands out, does he not, as the example of the most prideful man. Amnon, of whom we read, was later the one who violated his half-sister Tamar and was subsequently assassinated through the intrigue of Absalom. Chilean, we have listed here. He is otherwise called Daniel, which is very interesting in the first of Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. He was the son of Abigail. We know what sort of a woman Abigail was. The most wondrous of women. The most wonderful of women, so far as the truth is concerned. One can't help wondering whether perhaps David gave him the name of Chilean, but perhaps she was the one who termed him Daniel. Perhaps she was aware with her remarkable spiritual perception of the things that were going to develop within that family because of the multiplying of wives. Because we know that the name Daniel signifies the judgment of Ale. And so therefore judgment was going to come upon the house of David and probably she was also aware of the fact that the prophet Nathan had said to David that although his sin with Bathsheba had been forgiven that God would cover that because of his faithfulness in other respects and his general character and that he was in his heart a man of God. Yet despite that, remember Nathan said, the sword shall not depart from thy house. Perhaps Abigail looked at that very, very carefully and therefore this son was also known as Daniel, the judgment of Ale. Then we have Absalom here. Well, we all know what happened to him and we all know the things that are recorded of him in his life. And of course, one of David's great weaknesses was that he spoiled Absalom. He was too tolerant with Absalom. And here, of course, in the disaster that overcame Absalom and, of course, the suffering that it brought upon his father, there was a very great lesson also. And that is that we must be very balanced in the way we deal with our children. We believe that it is very, very wrong for parents to have a favourite child. If parents might have two or three or four or more children to have a particular favourite. Perhaps mother has her favourite. Perhaps father has his favourite. Perhaps they're different children. But it is not wise. There should never ever be a favourite in any family amongst the children. All the children should be treated equally. They should be given love. They should be given lots and lots of affection. They should be made to feel wanted as part of the family. They should be made to feel as though their mother and father really do love them and want to heap love and affection upon them. But with all that, they have to be disciplined. And all of those things have to be balanced out. And yet in this particular incident, it's very, very clear that David failed to treat Absalom with the discipline that he should have done. Then we have Adonijah. Remember that Adonijah was the one who endeavoured to seize the throne when David appeared to be near the point of death. And eventually he was put to death on the order of Solomon. Of Shephatiah, nothing more is heard of him. Of Ephraim, nothing more is heard of him either. So of these six sons that are referred to here, three of them turned out to be villains and the other three apparently amounted to nothing so far as the truth was concerned since nothing more is heard of them. You see, what is important in families is quality, not quantity. What's the point in having 10 or 12 or 14 children if among them all there is nothing to the honour and glory of Yahweh? What is important is that children have administered into them the qualities of the truth and then when they come of age and they go out to start their own lives, what they do after that is their own responsibility. But so long as the parents give them that sound, solid grounding to teach them the love of the truth and the discipline of the truth, we've often said to parents, 
that it is not good enough to teach our children the truth. We have to teach them to love the truth. And in that regard, the Word of God is filled with details of families where there have been such tragic failures in that regard. And so passing on then, we come to verse 6. We, we, we learn that it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. Here we have a very, very informative verse indeed. While there was war, Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And in considering the power he held, Abner now thought himself to be in an invincible position. He strengthened himself for the house of Saul. He didn't do it for God. What he was doing was wrong in any event. He didn't do it for the glory of Yahweh. He didn't do it for the unification of the nation. He didn't do it for the well-being of his brethren and sisters in the ecclesia. He strengthened himself for his own aims and his own objectives and his own considerations. And this led him to act very indiscreetly. And when we come to verse 7 here now, just watch the beginning of the working of the hand of providence. Here in verse 7, the unravelling of Abner begins. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? Now it's ironic, perhaps, that this concubine, Rizpah, was really a nobody. It's not as though there's a great row over, over some great important figure being swayed one way or another or being torn in one direction or then in another or something. This, there's nothing said about this particular woman, this concubine at all. And yet she becomes the instrument by which all Abner's plans begin to go awry. Why did Abner's action with Rizpah anger Ishbosheth? We might think, well, he's been really putty in the hands of Abner up until now. Why should he become angry over this? Well, the answer is, of course, that in those days, the harem or the harem of a deceased king was looked upon as the inheritance of the dead king's successor. And Abner had made Ishbosheth the successor. So you see, here is a great mistake on the half, by behalf of, uh, of Abner. He acts presumptuously. He feels so self-assured of his position that he can do what he likes. So how presumptuous of Abner to assume that he could get away with this without exciting or arousing the ire of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was the heir, not Abner. So this action of Abner's could only have the effect of debasing Ishbosheth in the eyes of his subjects. And he knew that, and that's why he was angry. He did not want to lose face with his subjects. After all, he was the king. Had Abner been content to remain the power behind the throne, which is what he had been up until now, and incidentally what Joab was always pleased to do, remember we've already made the point earlier, but Joab never ever sought the throne. He never ever wanted to be king. But he always wanted to be close to the seat of power. There was something about that that intrigued Joab, satisfied Joab's ego. And Abner was the same. But of course now he has made a great mistake. Had Abner been content to remain the power behind the throne, then many things might have turned out quite differently. But Abner could not restrain his pride or his arrogance in regard to this matter. And is it not intriguing that Absalom was to later repeat this identical, arrogant indiscretion? Keeping a hand in chapter 3, if we just go over for a moment to chapter 16 and verse 21 and 22. This is what we learn after David appeared to have been dismissed in disgrace. And here is another man who was a power behind the throne or would be thrown, and that is Ahithophel, in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, and verse 21 and 22. 
Uh, he that Phil said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which ye have left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. I'm sure Jod had that in mind when he ultimately dealt with Absalom. How foolish of him to repeat the same folly of Abner, knowing the outworking of that folly in Abner's life and the way in which it, it diverted events along a certain path from which Abner found there was no escape. So, in this sense, of course, what Abner had done was an act of treason. But Abner was going, wasn't going to put up with that. In verse 8, notice how long the verse is. It's a very long speech by Abner. Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? You see, now Abner can still no longer control himself. And his indignation indicates the extent of his pride and his self-confidence that he could take the king on whom he had set upon the throne. Am I a dog's head? The revised version renders it, Am I a dog's head that belongeth to Judah? In other words, are you treating me as though I were a worthless traitor, no better than an unclean animal, a dog's head? In actual fact, as we've said, it had been an act of treachery for Abner to assert the role of the king's successor in regard to this particular woman. You know, as we watch this all unfolding here, we see Abner coming out more and more in his true colours, as we saw also in the previous study. The true character of an unspiritual person will inevitably be revealed when they are rightly reproved for their erring ways. Ishbosheth was quite correct in reproving and rebuking Abner in this instance, but Abner shows himself in his true colours because a man who is dominated by pride and high self-esteem will not submit to sound and wise reproof at the hands of a wiser man in regard to any particular incident anyway. And such a man was Abner. So he says, do show kindness this day to the house of Saul. It's as though he's saying, this day do I show kindness unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, is how the revised version renders it, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, and yet thou chargest me this day with a fault concerning this woman. So the revised version renders it. See the implied threat there? I have not delivered thee into the hand of David. But if it was not for me, Ishbosheth, where do you think you would be? You only keep the throne because of my power and my generosity toward you. And I do have the power to deliver you into the hands of your adversary David if I should see fit to do so. Still very proud. Still very self-confident. But now look at verse 9. What an indictment upon Abner. So do God to Abner and more also except as Yahweh hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. That's really rather astonishing, isn't it? Because here Abner, for reasons of his own political advancement, had been actively fighting David and been very happy to do so, but now blandly confesses that he knows that Yahweh has sworn to David to give him the throne. What Abner's done and what he is now doing has not been done in ignorance. He knew something of the revealed will of God concerning David. 
as we would perhaps expect of Saul's uncle. He was a man devoid of spiritual perception. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going on. He knew what the word of God was, but it meant nothing to him. And we're reminded of the Lord's words in Matthew 13 and verse 14 when he refers to those who see but see not and hear but do not understand. So this incredible remark from the mouth of Abner provides further evidence for the fact that David's destiny as promised by Yahweh had become quite widely known which is a point that we have stressed in earlier studies. So prior to this time there is no record of Abner uttering any pious thoughts or any thoughts whatever concerning Yahweh and his purpose but now he blurts it out to Ishbosheth to translate the kingdom he says <laughs> that thou chargest me this day with a fault concerning this woman. You see from Ishbosheth's point of view this outburst from Abner constituted an open threat to treason. Ishbosheth really could readily have seized this opportunity to destroy Abner. He could have called for his guards or other soldiers or whatever, had Abner arrested, taken out and summarily executed. Those things were done rather smartly and without long drawn out court actions or courts of appeal or other things in those days were just decided upon by the king and it was done. He could have readily done that. He could have seized this opportunity and again things might have been different. But you see, the hand of providence was at work. And Ishbosheth, despite his outburst here, was really within himself a weak man. And he did nothing except perhaps to quake in his shoes. And Abner had known for some time that it was Yahweh's declared purpose to give the kingdom to, to David. But he had refused to submit to the reality of God's ability to achieve the divine objective. He was not going to concede that Yahweh was powerful enough to overturn the ambitions of Abner. So in the past he had closed his mind to such a concept and his sole aim had been to maintain his own position and that aim had not changed even now in spite of his words. So we find that Abner's violent disagreement with Ishbosheth did nothing to retard Abner's desire for preeminence. And when a man is motivated by a lust for power for prestige, for standing, then such weaknesses are not really very readily overcome. They're hard to overcome. They're a weakness of the flesh. But you see, Abner made no attempt to do so. Really, like Saul, his nephew, he made no attempt. He didn't have a good look at himself and say, well, look, I've got all these problems within myself. There are all these problems in my character and I need to do something about them. I need to find a man of God I can talk to. I need to open the word. I need to do something. Otherwise I can see the path I'm going down to is going to lead me to ruin. He never attempted to do that. There is no evidence to indicate that he ever gave it a thought. All he was concerned about was what was motivating him at any given time. So, what we find now, as we come to verse 10 and 11, is that Abner completely changed his policy, but not his motive. Inwardly he remained unchanged. Outwardly it appears that he has switched his loyalties from Ishbosheth to David. But inwardly his attitude and his loyalty remained solely to Abner himself. His first and only real interest was the advancement of his own cause. And when he goes to David to converse with David, just imagine the difference between those two men. How totally different was David's disposition when we consider Psalm 51 and verse 10 where David cries out to Yahweh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That was David. But it wasn't Abner. Not only was this David's frame of mind, but he always strove to influence others to a similar attitude of mind. That's why we have Psalm 51 in the word today. Because remember that it related to David's sin with Bathsheba and then with Uriah. And he wrote a psalm about it and he dedicated it to the musician, to the chief musician. 
so that David was prepared to have his weakness and his failing revealed to all Israel in the temple services in Psalm 51 as we know it in our Bible today. Therefore David strove to influence others to see the folly of sin, to see the folly of trying to pursue a way that is totally self-centred, that is related to pride and personal ambition. But that could never be said of Abner. So that David's attitude and conduct was quite the opposite to that displayed by Abner. So in verse 11, he says, it says here, and he, that is Ishbosheth, could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. So he quaked there. The king remained speechless in the face of the onslaught by the rather vicious Abner. And so Abner had sworn an oath to remove Ishbosheth from his throne. So do God to Abner and more also, as he said in verse 9. And then in verse 10, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now what's going to happen? Verse 12, And Abner sent messengers to David on, the, on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Let's pause there for a moment. Rotherham renders it, So Abner sent messengers unto David on the spot. That's Rotherham's rendering of the opening phrase. So Abner sent messengers unto David on the spot without pausing to consider all the implications, without seeking wise counsel or advice from others. Abner acted in anger and without delay. So he shows a rashness once again that we're learning to see was part of his character. He spoke out forcefully, belligerently, angrily when anything came out away in, in front of him that might in any way cause him to be rebuked or to be diverted into another way, as Ishbosheth had tried to correct him here. And so this is the message. Notice it says there very, very clearly, doesn't it? It says in verse 12 that uh, Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf. And it's very intriguing to see the way in which time and time again when we're dealing with Abner, it's always on his behalf. It's always his purpose that he's got in mind. It doesn't say he sent messengers to David in the hope that they might now be able to reconcile the two kingdoms, the two houses, and bring Israel to a state of peace and well-being under the good hand of Yahweh their God. Nothing of the sort. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, whose house, whose is the land, brother, in verse 12. It's as though in this little speech here in verse 12, whose is the land, saying also, make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee, to bring it out all Israel unto thee. It's as though he's now saying to David, you, David, might say it is yours, that is the land by divine decree. But remember that I, Abner, exercised considerable control in the land of the covenant. You, David, need to do a deal with me. Once again, there is a flagrant disregard of divine principles. Yahweh could bring it all about he could fix it up in a matter of seconds, if he so desired. Yahweh could bring it about and was in fact in the process of doing precisely that. Without Abner realising that Yahweh is using the weaknesses in Abner's character to bring about the divine purpose. And Abner, blithely pursuing his ambitious way, is totally unaware of the irony of that. So Abner's betrayal of Ishbosheth resulted primarily from his desire for self-justification and revenge. See, he became very angry with Ishbosheth as that speech in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10 shows very, very clearly. He was angry. And so he turned away from Ishbosheth and decided he would do a deal with David. 
He wanted self-justification and he wanted revenge now as well. And he wasn't the only one who wanted revenge, as we shall see. So Abner has now reached a stage where he has become enraged to think that Ishbosheth would dare to oppose him. And it was that bitter resentment that led Abner eventually to disaster and the loss of his own life. So here is another powerful and influential man who was nursing a desire for revenge. And as well as Abner, there was another man, not mentioned yet at this point, who was sitting there in the background waiting his opportunity. He wants revenge as well. And that man was Joab. He didn't want justice. He wanted revenge. So although he, he didn't know it this time, Abner's days were numbered. So there is his speech to David in verse 12. You make a solemn covenant with me and my hand will be with you. And Rotherham renders it this way. Solemnize thy covenant with me and lo, my hand shall be with thee to bring round unto thee all Israel. You see the powerful politician at work here? Listen David, I can do it. Trust me. When anyone says that to you, be extremely careful. Trust me. I can do it. What about Yahweh? Yahweh's overseeing all of this. As David knows, and the men of faith who were with him, they also knew that. So, David responds in verse 13, and he said, well, I will make a league with thee. So, why does David do this? We can be sure he would have given the matter very careful consideration. He was not one to act with thoughtless disregard for the outcome of his actions. And the first point we should note that was typical of the character of David, and this comes out later in the chapter, is that he was prepared to forgive Abner. He didn't hold a grudge. He didn't want revenge against Abner for setting up another king against him, Ishbosheth, when Yahweh had declared that the throne was to go to David. He didn't want revenge. He didn't hold a grudge. And it's important to understand that there was nothing underhanded or dishonest in the way in which David arrived at an understanding with Abner. Abner's motives, of course, were entirely different to those of David. David did not play upon Abner's fleshly weaknesses and he didn't offer a bribe or anything by saying, well, look, okay, well, we'll do a deal and uh, if you will help me in this matter, then I will see that you have a, a position of great honour in the kingdom. It appears that David simply accepted these developing events as evidence of the hand of providence. Things were working toward the unifying of the twelve tribes and bringing them to a state of unity and oneness. David could see that. Because you see, in David's reply there, in verse 13, David has made no personal effort, whatever. All he is doing here is permitting events to take their course. But he does make one positive action, and that is to demand the return of his lawful wife, Michal. Perhaps here there is a short, small type that we can consider. And that is that Israel cannot become united in all their twelve tribes again until Christ and his bride are united prior to the establishment of the kingdom. There is surely a little cameo of a little type there. But here is David, and a lot of people have some problems with this. One thing I require of thee, thou shalt not see my face except thou first bring Michal. Now why should David make this demand? Well first and foremost, she was David's lawful wife. She did not belong to anybody else. Therefore she rightly belonged with her proper husband. Secondly, David could see the time drawing near when he might become king over all the twelve tribes and it would be quite out of place for one of the king's wives to remain with another man. It would not be right. That had to be put right. 
And thirdly, let us remember that when Saul had taken Michal from David and given her to another, that action on Saul's part represented a public repudiation of David by Saul. And David wanted to see that situation obliterated. So therefore, Ishbosheth would therefore have to cancel out Saul's verdict of disowning David and Saul's oath to David in regard to Michal. So, this would then become a vindication of David. And it would also represent a confession that Saul's action in publicly disavowing David by giving his lawful wife to another man had been wrong and unjust. And for the sake of Yahweh's righteousness, David wanted to see that put right. You see, all Israel would become aware of the outcome of this question and it would really add to David's authority among the men of Israel to see that he was not repudiating the house of Saul. How many times has he done that? By taking that woman back as his lawful wife, the daughter of Saul, he's showing to the world that again, in another way, he's showing that he has no animosity. You see, in in requesting the return of Saul's daughter to his, his household, David was showing to all Israel that he had not repudiated the name of Saul. If he had done so, he would have said, as for that woman, Saul's daughter, I never want to see her face again. Saul gave her to somebody else, let him have her. But he doesn't. He has not repudiated the name of Saul or the house of Saul and he does not want it to be seen that he holds any animosity whatever against Saul for all the things that Saul had done to him and that he had suffered at the hands of the house of Saul. So the house of Saul and the house of David would become reunited in such a way that would have been acceptable to all parties. And that action on David's part then was a further step toward uniting all twelve tribes under his leadership upon a proper basis. There's David and the way his mind works. So in verse 14, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife, Michal, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Thaldiel, the son of Laish. You see, David takes this action now, not through Abner. Maybe already there is something in David's mind that shows him an element of distrust about Abner and the way in which Abner has just on the spur of the moment suddenly changed loyalties after long years of war between Abner and Joab, between the house of Saul and the house of David. Suddenly, Abner's a different man. Oh, David, let's come and talk business. I'll do a deal with you. I can bring all the tribes around to you. No problem. Trust me. Leave it to me. But doesn't, David doesn't leave it to, to Abner. He sends messengers to Ishbosheth. And that action was taken quite apart from his negotiations with Abner. You see, David wanted to be sure that what should be done would be done and that it would be done in the proper lawful manner through the only rightful channel possible and that was Ishbosheth. So Ishbosheth took her from Thaldiel. He was mentioned earlier in chapter 25 of the first of Samuel. And at verse 44, we're not told a lot about him, but we know a little bit about him. He's mentioned there in the first of Samuel 25 and at verse 44, where Saul took Michal off from David and uh, took her from David and gave her to this man. He's mentioned only in these two places. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And we mentioned at the time of our consideration of the earlier reference to him, but perhaps Saul owed him a favour for something or other. Or perhaps Thaldiel was a very wealthy man and maybe he had offered Saul a bribe because he was very attracted to this woman. But whatever intrigue may have been behind that very treacherous act on Saul's part against David, we mentioned that it would have been a man of very poor character who would have taken possession of another man's wife. That tells us something about Feldhill, doesn't it? What sort of a character would a man have 
who would take possession of another man's wife. Especially, might we add, under the circumstances in which David had been placed at that time, under so much pressure, being persecuted by Saul and hounded. David couldn't do a thing to help his own cause at that particular time. So Thaliel steps in and he becomes the quote-unquote husband of this woman. So Thaliel, of course, was a willing party to Saul's immoral and unjust act in taking David's wife from him and giving her to another man. And you know, when David had made this formal demand upon Ishbosheth, you wonder whether... Abner then would have uh, perhaps put the pressure on Ishbosheth to make sure that the matter was carried out. We don't really know, but what we do know is that Ishbosheth was very keen to bring this to a proper conclusion. So in verse 16, she is taken back. And uh, we notice though in verse 15 that Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even Feltiel, the son of Naish. And her husband went with her along weeping behind her to Bahurim. You notice the margin there is better. Her husband went with her going and weeping to Bahurim. Then said Abner unto him, go return. And he returned. The first point, notice that we look there. When Ishbosheth was going to bring this matter to a conclusion, Abner must have stepped in at that stage and said, look, don't worry about it. I'll handle this. I'll fix this up. Because it's Abner who was there taking Michal back to David. Not Ishbosheth. Not one of Ishbosheth's appointed servants. It is Abner right there in the middle of the whole deal. He's wormed his way into it. He was always out for his own best interests. I'll handle this matter, Ishbosheth. Don't worry about it. Leave it to me. I'll see that everything's done. So her husband went with her. And as we've said, the margin is right. Do you know that this woman would have been Faldil's wife, in inverted commas, probably for about eight or nine years by this time? And the break for this man, Faldil, would have been very, very hard to lose this woman at this time under these circumstances. Since it certainly seems that he had developed a very deep devotion and affection for her. He went going and weeping all the way. Perhaps it is not too difficult to have a little compassion for this pair at this time. I know it has been said that David was hard. We must not be moved merely by the emotion of a particular incident, which so often happens when we're faced with something of this nature. You see, we've got to look back on all of this, as well as considering why David wants the matter put right. You see, had Faldiel not become involved with Saul in the most outrageous and disgraceful betrayal of David by taking away from him his wife, and this man Faldiel taking possession of another man's wife, had he not been a party to that disgraceful action, then he would not now have been nursing his grief. And that reminds us always, doesn't it? That so often we're grieving and we're crying and we're in a state of anguish because of some foolishness that we've brought upon ourselves. That was the case with Faldiel. If we become a party to wrongdoing or the betrayal of others, we may expect that we shall pay for our folly in due course in some way or another. And remember there's even more than that at stake because Yahweh has been deeply offended by what has been done to David in this regard. The tenth commandment in Exodus 20 and verse 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife. This man felt ill, had coveted her and taken her. So you see, he has no just cause whatsoever, does he? He follows her to Bar-Hurim in the Jordan Valley between Jerusalem and Gilgal. And Abner says to him at that time, this is far enough, you go and you go back to where you belong. Abner let the distraught Thaldiel come thus far 
virtually to the borders of David's territory. You see how clever Abner is? He's not going to let this man over David into David's territory. Not at all. He doesn't want to be a party to that. He wouldn't let him proceed any further. And so it says he returned. Heartbroken, no doubt, but certainly with a great deal to reflect upon. So here is evidence to support the divine principle that men will surely reap according as they have sown. And Faldiel, as we've said, had been a willing party to the evil act of taking another man's wife. And at the time of his offence, he showed no sign of grief or shame or regret or anything. So that in shedding his tears now, his sorrow would have been better manifested in repentance for his sins against Yahweh and his sin offer a trespass offering for his sin against the innocent David instead of going away weeping, feeling sorry for himself. And so, in verse 17, we learn then that Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then, do it. For Yahweh hath spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. What a disgusting political speech. How more disgusting could you get than that? See, here's Abner now, all of a sudden, promoting the divine purpose. Why? Because it suited his own purpose to do so. No other reason. So the man who does correct things or endorses a just cause but from a wrong motive, can never hope to please Yahweh or to prosper spiritually. Nor can his apparently right actions be pleasing to God. Soundly based faith, together with a sound spiritual motive, provides the foundation for acceptable divine worship. And you read that speech of Abner there, verse 17 and verse 18. And again we see what sort of a man we're dealing with here in the Scriptures. Abner was not moved by those considerations, a proper faith, a sound motive, honour and glory to Yahweh in all things. Not at all. And you know, with all of us, with all of God's saints, in every age, every generation, there's got to be a constant re-examination of, of, of our motives and a, and a genuine desire to magnify Yahweh rather than to advance our own personal aims and objectives. Those are the lessons we learn so often from the failure of others. To see what they did, to see the way they lost their own lives, threw them away or wrecked them and wrecked the lives of others and their own families or others apart from their families and to learn from those things. And so there's nothing to be impressed with there, is there? I mean, after all, when you come to consider what is said here, he says, ye sought for David in time past to be king over you. Did he? Did they? I don't know of any case where they did. This is what a politician does. He tells you things that he wants you to know, what he wants you to learn, and the things that he, uh, that he wants you to, uh, to support. So, here is Abner, who for so long has been David's bitter enemy, now becomes an instrument under the hand of providence to fulfil the divine purpose with David. He doesn't realise what he's saying here in verse 17 and verse 18. What he's saying is true enough as far as uh, that Yahweh's promise by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel. Quite true. But here is Abner being used by, by providence to fulfil the divine purpose. How wonderful are the ways of Yahweh and how we should be prepared to acknowledge him in all our ways as Proverbs 3 and verse 6 says. So Abner knew that he had the power and the influence to bring about a state of union among the tribes which warfare had failed to achieve. So he says to them in verse 17, he sought for David in times past to be king over you. That's nonsense. There's no record to that effect, whatever. But as a very clever politician, he may possibly have alluded to what is recorded in the first of Samuel chapter 18 and verse 16 where it says that all Israel and all Judah loved him. 
love David. But that's all it says. Never says that they wanted to make him a king. So he's embellished that a bit, you see, to make it a bit more. And the people scratching their heads and the elders thinking, well, gee, did we, of course, it's years ago, you know, did we say that? Did we think that? But of course, he's quite right, isn't he? We really should have David for our king. So perhaps he used this past attitude of the people toward David to cause them to believe that they would have been prepared to make him king instead of Saul or after Saul. But Abner had never been in agreement with any such sentiment. Let's remember that. Even if there was some part truth in what he says here. He sought for David in time past to be king over you. Did Abner ever agree with that? Did Abner ever support that? Here is a classic example of political manipulation, but not godly intent. No room for it. So in verse 18 he says, Now then, do it. Or as the Jerusalem Bible says, Now you must take action. Again, typical of the pressure exerted upon men by politicians for their own ends. And of course here is treachery against Ishbosheth. For he says, Yahweh hath spoken of David saying and so on and so forth. See, when you read that verse, he goes far beyond anything that is recorded in Scripture. Again, knowing a little bit about what has been said of Yahweh's purpose in David, he takes it and he embellishes it. He makes it so much more attractive because now it suits him to make it attractive. And there also appears to be an implication that any prejudices against David should now be dropped because David was Yahweh's choice for the next king of Israel. So you see, it's now even more apparent that Abner was now concerned to champion David's cause, to advance his own cause. So he was sufficiently immoral to use God's purpose to consolidate his own position. So down in verse 19, we have a special reference to the ears of Benjamin. And Abner also spake in the years of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the years of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. Why does it especially mention Benjamin? Because of all the tribes, Benjamin is probably the one that would have been the hardest one to win over, seeing that Benjamin was Saul's tribe. They would be the most difficult tribe to convince, but Abner went to work on them like a true politician. Isn't it remarkable how that verse especially mentions the tribe of Benjamin? So having done that and won them over, we read that Abner went also to speak in the ears of David. So he went dutifully to David to report progress. Thought things were going fine. Everything was going wonderfully, just as he had planned it. Not realising it, that it was just as God had planned it and that Yahweh was using Abner and not the other way around. And so the hand of providence, brethren and sisters, is always there. We must be aware of it. We must be conscious of it. And above all else, we must be prepared at all times to acknowledge that hand of providence and to give our full support to the purpose of God and to plead always with him, to be guided by him, to do that which is right in his eyes, that which is acceptable to him, and to pray that he will always guide us in that way and in that direction. And in this sense, we see the utter abject failure of Adna contrasted with the faith of David.